Welcome to Digging Deeper in Grace, a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Our goal each episode is to dig deeper into the scriptures with a focus on our most recent sermon. And now let's dig deeper. Well, hello, welcome, and thank you very much for tuning in today. I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, and back to the microphone is Tim Cockrell. And today we're going to be discussing Tim's recent sermon from two verses in Matthew, two power-packed verses, Tim Mm. Cockrell, uh, from chapter 5, and those are verses 31 and 32. But Tim, what a significant pair of verses. They are. They're significant and sensitive, and I think that's what makes it really challenging is, as I mentioned in the message. I mean, every one of us have been touched by divorce and have difficult questions that we face in the messy realities related to this. But I think it's also really significant to focus then on God's design for marriage. And I think that's one of my fears is that sometimes we focus so much then on, okay, so when is Jesus saying we can get a divorce rather than missing what I think is ultimately his trajectory? And that is God so values this beautiful permanent design of marriage that any disruption of it is is a heartbreaking reality in the kingdom. And to that point, uh, last week, Trent Rogers uh, presented a fourfold purpose for marriage. I won't worry about the other three, but what (laughs) I want to focus on here is the first one you presented. And that he said, marriage is for the public order. And so with regard to this idea of public order, this really goes all the way back to Genesis. Mm -hmm. I think you would agree the beginning of human history with Adam and Eve and the society that sprang directly Mm -hmm. from their union. Can you flesh out that thought for us? Let's, I think it'd be, it's important to kind of build the case from Mm -hmm. Genesis, how this idea of marriage affects everything we do. Right. Well, I mean, I think it starts with our view of humanity, that God didn't design us to live individualistically. And I think we see that clearly in Genesis 2, when God gives Adam the responsibility of naming the animals. And for Adam, there was no corresponding counterpart found, because the Lord specifically said, it's not good that man be alone. And so I think he he created us for a complementarity to where a husband needs his wife and the wife needs her husband. And there's a whole nother discussion there of well, what does that mean for our singles and you know are they somehow incomplete or not whole? And hopefully we'll talk about that even as we go through this podcast. But I think that we're hardwired for relationship is is the point there. That then the institution of marriage becomes the foundational building block of society to where husband and wife are the primary way that complementarity is expressed and that it's not just an end in and of itself, but that then it's designed to go and be fruitful and multiply, to, to have dominion over the earth and to rule over it. And that God designed husband and wife to come together to have children such that the, the world would be filled with image bearers so that the knowledge of God would cover the earth as the ocean covers, the, as the waters cover the sea. And so when we understand that, then marriage is the the foundational institution of any society. It's the means by which children are are trained and instructed. It provides the stability and permanence of these relationships. And so when we begin to see a breakdown of marriage, we begin to see ripple effects individually within the nuclear family as well as in society. So you say it's a chief building block. Let's, this might be elementary to some, but mm-hmm. I think it might be helpful. You got marriages, it goes into families. Can you take it from there? It just illustrate how this, from family to, to what? Where does this end? Well, I mean, I think you see the collaboration of families within a community, you know, whether that's town, village, city, whatever that might be, but that 
that your communities, whether it's through your your legal government or your police or those types of things, are are external in some ways, whereas the family is internal. And so if your families have a breakdown, you're going to see lawlessness, you're going to see a breakdown in social order and those types of things. And then obviously beyond just the local context into your your state, your nation, your your broader world, that's going to affect a number of different things related to just how society operates. And certainly at not at all to, uh, I'll use the word denigrate, but to, to lessen the impact of those who are not married. Mm-hmm. But this flows right into that, I wasn't going to mention it, but this, that second point that Trent makes, the purpose for marriage, propagation, procreation. Mm-hmm. Without that, the society doesn't continue. I mean, just to be very frank. Yep. No. Absolutely. And, uh, and that's one of the things that I think we as Christians need to, you know, really be holding high the value of, of having children, of, of caring for children. It's a key part of our kingdom identity. Well, in light, really, of each of these four purposes of marriage that Trent points out, it's not really surprising to hear you say on Sunday, I think I'm quoting here, our marriages are a key battleground that Satan often chooses to challenge God's design. If we believe that Satan is real, mm-hmm. we, I think we have a pretty robust theology. We probably, you know, we can always study it more, but of, of uh, demonology and of Satan, uh, he's active here. Mm-hmm. That's right. And if marriages are should be our first priority, and that's how I interpret what Jesus says in Matthew 19, you know, that for this reason a man will leave his father and mother, that this relationship now becomes more important than any other relationship or responsibility in our lives. And if we believe that marriage is also our most intimate, our most therefore vulnerable relationship, it shouldn't be any surprise that Satan decides he's going to attack those things. Because if he can create division or discord or even lead us to just disregard this relationship that's supposed to be a priority, he's already been effective at beginning to break down this foundational institution that has a God-ordained purpose. It reminds me, Tim, of the First Peter five eight admonition to uh, be sober, be vigilant. Mm-hmm. Uh, for your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. When I see, hear that verse read or I, I recite it from my memory, I'm thinking of head on a swivel. Mm-hmm. And with a marriage, my husband and wife need to be constantly looking out for. Not that we need to run scared. Mm-hmm. I don't think we need to run scared. We have victory over Satan. But wouldn't you say that it's appropriate? We all need to have our head on a swivel, whether the waters are calm or the waters are choppy. Yep. Well, we need to be vigilant, which I think is what you're talking about. But we also Absolutely. need to be informed. And I'm not remembering the specific scripture verse, but where I think it's Paul says, we are not ignorant of his schemes. And so if we understand how he is prone to attack, we're going to be that much more equipped to see it and to counteract it both reactively as well as proactively. And what you're saying, we get back to uh, the idea doctrine is important. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, as you mentioned, whether single, or married, or divorced, or maybe I mentioned it here, we should all be promoting strong marriages. And you said this past, on the Sunday. Can you, can you talk about ways that maybe you've seen or I've seen our churches fail in this pursuit Mm. and let's face it we have yeah yeah and we hate to start with a negative but i think until we recognize some of those shortcomings we maybe can't see some of the positive priorities we ought to be pursuing i think one that immediately comes to mind is we kind of just assume everybody's probably doing okay 
you know, and that we don't actually address the topic of marriage until things already are at a critical level. And I know I've counseled couples like this. I'm confident you have as well to where it's like, man, if we could have gotten a hold of this couple five years ago, if we could have addressed these things in a premarital way, we would have been much more equipped to, to deal with these patterns when they were still small. But now this this tree has taken root, if you will. And in order to to do it, there's going to have to be a lot of excavation that's going to get really messy and difficult. I think another way that we can um, fail to really support marriages in the ways that we need to is that we sometimes don't provide or encourage people towards small group environments in which they are personally known and authentically vulnerable. You know, to where we feel like we just show up to church and everybody else's marriage is fine. Everybody else is doing well. And so we kind of just go subterranean. What's wrong with me? Yeah, exactly. You know, and then we say, man, you know, that husband sure seems to lead his family well. And that wife never seems to disagree with her husband or whatever it may may be. And so therefore we just kind of operate in a fake way rather than using our small groups to do that hard, messy work of ministry in which we're doing the one another in both the encouragement as well as perhaps the confrontation. I think another way that sometimes churches can struggle um, related to marriage is failing to understand what God teaches about divorce. And that can have two different ways that it can present itself. One, we listen sympathetically and endorse unbiblical divorces. So in other words, we maybe are so eager to be compassionate, not wanting to lack empathy, that somebody comes to us and they're unhappy, they're in a loveless, miserable marriage, and so we want to tell them, that's fine, you go ahead and pursue a divorce, God loves you and we love you too, rather than actually upholding that covenant of marriage. On the other extreme, I think one of the dangers that we can have is that if somebody does have biblical grounds for divorce, that even if we give kind of reluctant permission to do that, we then begin to treat them almost as a second-class citizen. That there's a stigma associated with that person as if they're now no longer whole because of the ways that they've been sinned against by their spouse. And I think one last thing that I would say is just simply a deficient theology of singleness. And so that might seem like an odd answer to your question of what are some ways that maybe we, we fail to uphold marriage. But if we uphold marriage as if it were the brass ring, as if, man, that's where, where you really become whole and that you are somehow incomplete until you're married, well, then what we've done is communicated to our singles, your whole life ought to just be lived in anticipation that maybe someday you'll get married, rather than having a more complete view of humanity and complementarity that allows the church to play a vital role there as well. Another thing that comes to my mind, Tim, is the whole idea. And, and you know, I, I think through how, what are some other ways, other marriage traps that it's easy for a church like Grace Baptist Church mm-hmm. to fall into? Um, you know, we have a high view of marriage. Uh, certain churches and offshoots of churches, uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, sects and so forth, uh, you know, polygamy, uh, celibacy within the priesthood. Mm-hmm. Uh, think of the Catholic Church, of course. Another area I see is an area where we take a, a passage or passages like the Ephesians 5 and 6, and we look at it and we say, well, this is how marriage should work. The husband's in charge. Mm-hmm. The wife falls in line. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- that's one example mm-hmm. of, a, of a trap that we can fall into. Can you think of others? And things that we really need to guard against. 
Yeah, I mean, I, you know, the first one that you just mentioned certainly is true, and that is a misunderstanding of roles within marriage, either to flatten it so completely in an egalitarian way that there's there's no distinction in roles, or to to make it such a hierarchy of disparity of power that the husband really gets to, to be the, the dictator in the marriage, if you will. One that I think is is pretty pervasive in American churches. I don't know uh, whether it's true at Grace, although I'm sure that it has influence. And that is just to view marriage more as a contract than a covenant. Mm-hmm. That we approach marriage with this idea that it's pr- supposed to do something for me rather than do something in me. And so I approach marriage then to say it's to make me fulfilled, it's to provide happiness, provide you know, financial security, blessing of children, companionship, all those things. But implicit in that is the idea that I'm willing to pay a certain cost as long as certain conditions are met. And also as long as I get paid. Right, exactly. So if if those conditions, if if the benefit I'm receiving is roughly equivalent to the cost that I'm paying, then that contract feels like we're both upholding our end of the bargain. But if the other person no longer is fulfilling my expectations, well, then it becomes – we become quick to say, well, I ought to be able to get out of this contract because it's no longer fulfilling what I'm expecting it to. I think secondly, and I touched on this in the message, we can begin to assume that God primarily is concerned with a married couple staying married. Hmm. You know, that, that kind of our goal as Christian couples is don't get a divorce. You know, don't have the, the covenant dissolved. And I think if that's where our focus is, we, we've fallen into the same trap as the Pharisees, that we uphold the permanence of marriage, but we neglect the intimacy and mutuality that God designed for marriage. And I think God desires something much more wholehearted and holistic for us as we pursue marriage. And then the third one, and I've already alluded to it, and that is kind of the idea that somehow someone who is not married is incomplete. And therefore, we we may not even articulate it, but we reflect it in the way that we approach things, either with young singles or even with older people that are, are widows or widowers, that we treat them as if, well, I'm not going to invite them over because they're just a widow or they're just a single, and they then feel kind of marginalized or ignored. Awkward. Yep. And, and that's what we often think, isn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. it's just easier not to have to deal with that because it doesn't match up. Right. With yeah, I fully hear what you're saying, Tim. You very graciously mentioned that marriage is a hard topic for for some to discuss, or or all of us even to consider. Uh, people who are in difficult marriage situations, those who have divorced, whether scripturally or otherwise, those who are not married who desperately want to be. Let's can you encourage that person just a step further in the context of this greater discussion of marriage? Hmm. Yeah, that really covers a wide range of people. So let me just kind of start with with a couple of things that's going to apply to everyone in in all of those categories, and and that is something that's just going to sound so simple that it's simplistic. That it starts with the gospel. That whether we're in a broken marriage, a strained marriage, or we are not not married or not yet married. I think we have to, first of all, have a proper view of our identity in God. That is, that God has forgiven the unforgivable in us, and that he has faithfully loved us in our unloveliness. And so let's just talk to the married couple right now. That as you interact with your spouse, who doesn't uh, always behave in lovely ways, or that requires you to forgive them. Are you talking to Katie here? Well, you know, okay. we're speaking completely in hypotheticals here. 
that God is never going to ask us to forgive someone else for something more than he has forgiven us. And I think that's where it comes back to that idea of meekness, that we have a level of humility that leads us to gentleness and gracious graciousness with other people. I think then the next thing I would say is that, that whether you've been divorced or, or whether you're in the midst of a really difficult season, God in his power and his grace redeems our past and uses our present to grow us in our relationship with him. So no matter what hard realities we've been, no matter what past hurts or present pressures that we're facing, God is at work in those to make us holy. And if we begin to kind of orient our perspective toward that rather than just how do I get out of this difficult thing or how do I even get back at this person who hurt me, I think that helps us to have a more gospel-focused approach. I think finally then I would just say for whatever season you're in, whatever situation you're in, in Christ, you are loved, you are accepted, and you are whole. And that if you are in a season of singleness, that the church is designed to be a community for you just as much as it is designed to be that for married couples. And so just learn to to rest in him and be faithful to God in whatever situation you find yourself in. And I think that's going to uphold both the beauty of the gospel and the picture of marriage that we've seen. Wouldn't you say also something that comes to my mind as I hear you talking, a challenge to those who are married? <laughs> And let's face it it it, 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 it goes into our discussion of race relations or, or any type of situation where there are opposing viewpoints mm-hmm. or, or conflict, potential conflict. I don't see this as so much conflict, but just reach out, cross those lines that may, it may be a little awkward to have a, somebody who is not married in your group of seven. Mm-hmm. And not eight, mm-hmm. or it might, but but reach out and really be sensitive to that fact that we don't always include everybody mm-hmm. uh, in our in our social circles. It's it's easy not to. It's easier not to than it is to. Mm-hmm. to. And I would even say that goes both directions. It does because I think you know if you're a single person, you may feel awkward inviting a married couple over. You know, or getting plugged in those ways. But but I would encourage singles, you can have a powerful role to play in encouraging married couples as well. Not necessarily in terms of giving advice, although that's not, you know, out of the question. But just just being a a voice of support and encouragement, um, it's bi-directional. And doesn't that take us back to that overarching statement that we've we've talked about numerous times here in Chapter 5? What is the real call of the believer Mm -hmm. love god and love others and if we're not loving all others we're missing a part of that yes very good tim uh, we're next week we go to a a passage here in matthew we're talking about oaths Mm -hmm. promises vows Give us a little taste what's coming. Sure. Well, when we come to this section, this uh, of all these, you know, you've heard it said, but I say to you statements that Jesus gives, this one maybe feels like the most distant. You know, we're not really (laughs) regularly taking oaths, um, you know, unless we're in a court or something like that. But when it comes down to it, we're talking about being people of transparent truthfulness, being people of wholehearted integrity. And when we view it that way, then we have to really look at what are the ways in which deceit, untruthfulness, and a failure to keep our word can affect our witness 
and really reflect some idols of our heart. And so that's what we're going to dig into. And I'll confess, as I'm preparing, there's a whole lot of conviction here for me. And so uh, do warning, there may be some of that as we, we dig into it. But I just want to also reiterate, what Jesus is doing here is not using a club to pound us over the head and saying, you're not doing this right, you're not doing this right, you're not doing this right. What he's doing is issuing a gospel invitation into a pattern and path of flourishing that will lead to joy and contentment that he's saying, don't go down these dead end roads, but come into my kingdom and live according to my pattern because that's where joy is really found. Do it right. Even if it's hard. Mm-hmm. Wow. Great. Good stuff. Uh, Tim, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, great, thank you, Bart. Uh, great time of discussion. We've been digging deeper today with Tim Cockrell, and we invite you to share your questions and comments with us each week. You can email those to contact at gracecedarville.org. And plan to join us next time. We will be continuing our study of God's Word in Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37 on oaths. Until we meet again, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, thanking you for tuning into this episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. Digging Deeper in Grace is a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Visit us online at gracecedarville.org and join us next time as we continue our discussion. In the meantime, we invite you to continue digging deeper in grace as you read God's Word.